0: Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we would love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in, where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we need you tonight to come and speak to us. Um, I believe that you've put us here when you have for a reason. I believe that we are in this place together today for a reason. I believe that you've brought us to this city at this moment in history for a reason. And your word illuminates your, your purposes for us. And so today we plead with you that your spirit would move and speak to us. It's our only hope. So we lift this time to you as we grope around as men in the darkness looking for you and plead with you that you would be near to us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We are in a series together as a church in the book of Acts. We're in the third section of the book of Acts. And we've seen from the beginning in this book, it's, it's a book that's written about the establishment of the early church and the church itself. And so Luke, our author, wrote the, one of the Gospels, the Gospel that bears his name, the Gospel of Luke, and also this book of Acts. And in it we saw from the beginning that Jesus had commissioned his followers to be his witnesses in, Jeru- in, in Jerusalem, the city where everything started, in Judea and Samaria, and To the ends of the earth. You guys are with me. That's fantastic. I didn't even have to plead for it tonight. And so, um, again, so there were three stages of Jesus' commissioning of his followers to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and and to the ends of the earth. And so we've seen in this third section the extension of Christ's kingdom and the extension of the proclamation of the good news of who God is and what he'd done in Christ to the ends of the earth. And now we're on our second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And so we've seen him go through Lystra and Derbe and Troas and Philippi. Last week we saw him in Thessalonica and Berea, where he got run out of both places by the same angry mob that followed him from one city to the next. And it finally got to the point where Silas and Timothy, who were with him, said, Paul, will you please just get out of here? They stayed behind to help those um, who had come to follow Christ and had come to believe. They had stayed behind to help teach them and prepare them and then sent Paul off on a boat to Athens. And that's where our story comes in today. This passage, in, we're in Acts chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, you can open it with me to Acts 17 or click there um, through your Bible app. If you would like a paper Bible, we have some available for you on the book table. It's our gift to you. So in Acts 17, we now come to Athens. Athens was a world-renowned city. It was the wisest city in the world at the time, the center point of Hellenistic culture. So even though we're in the Roman Empire, the primary trade language of the empire was Greek and the, the culture was Hellenistic, through and through, um, and so it, it was a center point of learning and the exchange of ideology where, where people would come together with different viewpoints and thoughts and be able to, to discuss those things in the marketplace. That was the culture of Athens, and this passage for us as a church, for Redemption Hill, has been foundational from the very beginning. From before we, our church even had a name, as we were looking at what God might call us to in DC. and, and what we were called to plant in this city with the hopes that a church would grow from it, um, this has been a church that we've gone, this has been a passage we've gone to to ask the question: you know, Does the gospel of Jesus Christ have a place in this city? Does, can it speak to this cultural context, and, and what would it look like as a church to approach life and ministry in this place? And so for every one of us here today, I think this passage is important, whether you're part of Redemption Hill or not, whether you're religious or irreligious, we can see in this passage where we can find real hope, and also it shows us how the gospel intersects with real life. And so this is what we have in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. "'For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. "'Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. "'So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, "'Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious.' And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, and among whom were also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so Paul gets to Athens. He was sent on again. He got run out of two cities consecutively by a rioting mob by the angry rabble, was, is what the ESV called it. Um, and this is something we've seen in Paul's ministry so far, that he consistently had these run-ins where it seemed like he was constantly like barely skirting out with his life. In his first missionary journey, he got dragged outside of a city and stoned and left for dead and, and then got up and went back into the city and the next day continued on his journeys. And so Paul has certainly shown a Resilience in ministry. Um, But still, when he gets to Athens, I, I think here, I mean, if I put myself in his shoes or if we imagine what it would have been like for him, I mean, at this point, his travel companions, Timothy and Silas, were left behind in Berea. He was sent there alone and he gets to the city. And when he gets to Athens, he doesn't fall into patterns that we might fall into, but instead it says that his spirit was provoked within him. Because he saw that the city was full of idols. And so we're going to learn some lessons from the Apostle Paul today, the three big ones. And the first one is we need to recognize the idols of our city. This is the biggest issue that Paul faces in the text. It said his spirit was, was troubled within him, that his spirit so was provoked within him. This is the same language that's used throughout the the Hebrew Bible, and Luke is cueing us in here, our author, that this is language when God would respond to the idolatry of his own people, and so something in Paul was stirred up within him, and he couldn't sit back passively. I think this is important for us because if, if we imagine getting to Athens in the way that he could have responded, I mean, even now, if I go to the city of Athens, I would love to get to Athens. I've not been there in my life, but I would love to see that place, the history of it, the culture of it, to see even the, the famous Mars Hill or the Areopagus Hill where Paul is, is said to have stood and, and made this defense. It would be amazing to see. And I think our responses to our own city can be similar. You see, the reason this has been a foundational text for us is because I really believe that D.C. is our culture's Athens. I think for our nation, Rome, New York is our Rome, if we look at a New Testament context, but, but D.C. is our culture's Athens. I mean, my goodness, go, go and walk down the National Mall. It looks like Athens. We're a city that's, that's filled with with people with all kinds of ideas and ideologies, and a place where people come together in the marketplace and discuss those things. And people are genuinely, in my interactions, very curious to learn from each other and to hear from each other. And even the way that politics is approached in this place versus other places around the country, I mean, we could call it a D.C. bubble, or we could recognize that people here are highly ideological even in the engagement of politics. And so here, I think that D.C. reflects something of Athens, but I think when we get to D.C. or when people, whether you've grown up here or have been here a long time or whether you are new to D.C., whatever the case, I think we see a different approaches than, than what we see in Paul as people encounter this place. And Paul could have walked into Athens and turned into a cultural tourist and said, my goodness, look at all this stuff here. Look at all the history. Look at all the things I can learn, and look at all the things that, I mean, they didn't have iPhones, so he wasn't going to get out a selfie stick, right? Like the wand of Narcissus. Um, <laughs> and so that wasn't a thing yet. Um, but he could have been enamored with the place and been so impressed with Athens itself that his judgment became clouded, and he wasn't able to see that the city had another side to it. We know this happens because we see people come in all the time and only experience the National Mall and think that's the District of Columbia. Hopefully, you don't think that. There's an actual city here. I mean, I get that a lot when I'm traveling outside of this place where people will say, you know, hey, oh, do you have, do you have a lot of like, members of Congress in your church? I'm like, no, I mean, they'd be welcome to come to our church, but, but we're talking about 535 people out of a metro area of over 6 million there's a few other things to do here. And so with it, there is a real city here, and, and, and cultural tourists can miss that. And, and the disappointing thing, or the, the hard thing to grapple with, is that cultural tourism doesn't just come from tourists. There are people who can live their lives in this city and never move beyond cultural tourism of trying to take in the culture of this place without, it, without actually experiencing the city itself. The other thing Paul could have done is he could have, like, hunkered down and protected himself from the city and, and said, you know what, I'm tired. I've been, I've been run out by the angry rabble and I've been run out of the last two places. My friends sent me on a boat alone and I'm going to sit here and lick my wounds and stay out of danger for a little bit. But he didn't do that. We do the same thing. Where, where, and, and the Christians can be the worst about this. Like, the the subculture that that Christian communities can create in order to avoid ever interacting with the broader world around us can get crazy, where we build really big bunkers and then sit down and say, you know, we're just going to sit here and be safe, and we're going to be a safe harbor in the midst of a scary place, and then we're going to, from our bunkers, lob grenades at everybody outside. Any of you that grew up in youth groups that had charts on the wall that said, if you like Pearl Jam, it was the 90s, then you will like this Christian band. Know what I'm talking about? And that Christian band was never as good as Pearl Jam. <laughs> <laughs> like, Christian movies? Come on. Like, we, Christians ought to be <laughs> producing the best art in the world. Um, but instead, there's these weird Christian cultural ghettos that get produced where nothing comes in and nothing comes out. And we think that we're doing what God wants us to, but it's all tied to, the, to a belief, I, I believe, that a misplaced eschatology, that Jesus is going to burn this place when we, he comes back and have something totally different, rather than believing that he's renewing and restoring all things for his glory. And so, no, this, this, you know, I can remember a song from one of those Christian bands, the world is like an ice cream Sunday, it's all going to melt someday. That is a terrible theology. It's terrible theology. No, Christ is renewing and restoring all things, and we're a part of that. On the other hand, he, Paul could have fallen into selfish ambition and said, I'm in Athens. Here's a chance for me to make a name for myself. Here's a chance for me to roll myself out as a teacher and, and make a big deal out of myself and use what I can in this city and leverage it for my platform so that it, so that it catapults me to the next thing. But we don't see that in his approach either. And so, and that's important for us because this is how so many people use D.C. We talk, I hear people talk about all the time, like, oh, I just love D.C. And what they mean is, I love the accessibility and the amenities of this place. Not, I want to self-sacrificially invest myself into the good of the people that live here. It's, I love that I can walk down the street and if it's a Monday and Little Pearl is closed, I can stop at Peregrine. Or, you know, there was the one day that I remember that Peregrine was doing renovations on a Monday and both were closed, and I was like, what am I going to do? I'm in a coffee desert. (laughs) I'm going to have to go to Starbucks. Loving the amenities of the city is not the same as loving the city. But a lot of people come to this place or use this place to try to leverage it for their own good and their own selfish ambition, and if you're doing that, you're not going to be able to see through and recognize the idols of this place. Paul saw through the great culture of the wisest city on earth at the time, and he set his, heart on, or his heart was set on something deeper. And it was troubled by the idolatry that he saw. He saw the beauty and the brokenness of the city, and he was able to deal with both. Now, we have, our city has an idolatry problem not bowing down to to statues, actual statues most of the time, of wood and stone and gold and and silver, images made by the art and imagination of men, though, I mean, I think in this place that's a harder case to build, and I'll get to that. Most of us don't struggle with that, but we struggle with an idolatry of our souls. Now, we spent a lot of time on this a few weeks ago, and so you can go back, and all of our sermons are online, so I don't want to dig too deeply, but just briefly, we struggle with an idolatry in our souls, every one of us. The great reformer Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. And so that is, we need to understand that that is, all of us, our hearts are drawn, our affections are drawn toward something. And that is what what the Bible talks about as the gods that call out to us in our lives. Whatever it is that we look to to provide us hope, and meaning and fulfillment that only God provide, that is our idolatry. And for most of us, the struggle is that we take the good things of God, the gifts that He's given us, and we lift those good things up to become the ultimate things, and that's when and, and so they turn into functional heavens and saviors. And so we take money and sex and success and reputation and love and family and work, good things, every one of those. But we lift those up to be the ultimate. And so if you want to discover your own idols and our city's idols, you need to start to ask questions like, what do you daydream about? What does your mind go to in moments where you actually have quiet and stillness? I know that's hard to imagine living in D.C., but when you're able to get moments of stillness, where do your thoughts wander to? What, what, is, what is the background on your iPhone what is the background on your desktop at work so that when you finally close out all the all the windows or at least minimize your tabs for the day there's an image there that reminds you oh that's why I'm doing this What is it that you're scared to lose it would devastate a few you if you lost it, or what, what causes you an irrational emotional response? And you know what I'm talking about. Moments where somebody will say something or, or something will happen in your life and you feel a reaction within you that even you in the moment are like, oh gosh, that, that hurt way deeper. Why did I just flash in anger like that? What is going on there? See, we all worship something. Something has captured our affections. And if it isn't Christ, if it isn't Jesus, then it will not satisfy us. And if it isn't Jesus, it won't forgive you when you fail it. Tim Keller, a pastor, says there's four root idols for us. Power, control, comfort, and approval. And so power is a longing for influence or recognition, and that comes out also in a desire for a good leader, a perfect leader. Control is a longing to have everything go according to our plans or to, to, have, or, and, or to have something planned out for us. Comfort is a longing for pleasure and approval is a longing to be accepted or desired. And within those four root idols that each of us, each of us struggles with, either one prominently or, or we rotate through the four, we all have functional heavens, which is our goal. If we could just get to this point, then we'd be satisfied. If I could just find the right person to marry me, then all of life would be right. If I could just get to this level of income, then everything would be fine. If I could just eliminate this problem or get that person out of my life, then it would be fine. And so we all have something that we, that we look to, to when we would finally be able to rest and be satisfied. And we all have functional saviors, which are the things or people we leverage in order to get there. And then there are pervasive idolatries of our city that if you're here for any amount of time, it just becomes the air we breathe, and it's hard to even recognize it anymore. So power. Let's walk through the four real quick. That one's almost too easy (laughs) in this town. Go walk. I mean, you could leave. It's a beautiful night. You could leave here tonight, grab some tacos, and then go for a stroll down the National Mall and it would be incredible. The, seeing the monuments lit up at night is incredible. It's beautiful. It's the best time to see them. And if you if you live here, you know that. Like, Especially if you go later, then a bunch of the tourists leave, and you can actually see stuff and not have to fight the middle school bus crowds. And it's beautiful to see. And, and within that, though, I mean, again, you walk down the National Mall, and these are monuments to human beings. And and some of them, even people that we love and respect, I mean, it's hard to say anything bad about Abraham Lincoln, right? But have you ever realized that when you walk into the Lincoln Memorial, we actually have an image of this, if we could put it up. You walk into the Lincoln Memorial and it says, in this temple, as in the hearts of the people for whom he saved the union, the memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. That's not very subtle. <laughs> but it gets better. Better. If, if you haven't done a Capitol tour, find a staffer in Redemption Hill. You don't have to look hard, just like throw something and it'll hit one. <laughs> find a staffer in Redemption Hill to take you on a tour. And I'm so grateful for the staffers that, that have, I've gone on a bunch of tours. as friends come in and, and visitors come in and, and gotten to see behind the scenes where you actually get to see more than just the rotunda. But when you walk into the rotunda, do any of you know what the painting at the top of the rotunda is called? Look, put that on the screen. First of all, just look at it. This is called the apotheosis of Washington. Do you know what the word apotheosis means? It's a Greek word. Apa is the preposition to lift up. Theos is the root for God. This is the deification, the lifting up to be God of George Washington, which you can get a sense from the painting because he's wearing a military coat while seated on clouds surrounded by women. (laughs) (laughs) like what would george have thought of that <laughs> we have lifted up men to be gods in our city and we glorify the idol of power and influence we talk about this a lot as a church it is amazing to me the number of statues in the district of columbia that are to people that i have never heard of before that wikipedia has a hard time finding and they get a statue in this town so we have an idol of power we have an idol of control dc might be the most type a city anywhere and um, <laughs> there, was, there was when I first when our, we were first planting Redemption Hill Church and um, I was first getting to know people and, and I was always surprised when people wanted to be a part of a church plant like I would meet people and, and start talking to them and they'd ask what I was doing and then they would say oh I would like to keep in touch and I'm like what? Like, really? And then God started to gather people together, and this thing started to grow, and, and it was amazing to see. And I can, I'll never forget one of my first pastoral counseling appointments ever. Um, a young girl in our church said, hey, I'd like to meet with you, and I have some things I'm dealing with, and I just don't know how to wrestle through it, and I need some help. And I was like, cool, let's do that. I was excited. Like, I get to actually pastorally care for this person. And we sat down at Peregrine Espresso, and she pulled out a bullet-pointed list and said, all right, here's the problems in my life that I want to talk through today. Bop, 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 bop. And I was like, what? That's amazing. That got so much easier than spending the first 40 minutes trying to like, ask the right question to unlock the problem, which I'm cool with if, you, if we need to spend that time. But she had a bullet-pointed list, and I was like, I have never experienced that before. That was not the last time that's happened. Some of you may have come to me with a similar list. There, there's something amazingly Type A about this that it is it, that is in the air in this city. Um, JFK said somewhat famously about this city, he said someone somebody said once that Washington was a city of northern charm and southern efficiency. There's a culture to this place. Comfort. We are in we are a city filled with escapes. And when is the opportunity to connect with coworkers and other people in your field? It's happy hour every time. D.C. is not a breakfast town. Like, you go to breakfast in this place, and first of all, like, the cafes only open at 7. Like, that is not early in most places around this country. But it's a happy hour town, because when people get out of work, they want to escape. And so people in this town spend all week escaping as soon as they get out of work, spend the weekend escaping and indulging and then trying to get back at it on Monday morning. There may be no city in the world with more adult rec leagues in obscure sports and games than this place. (laughs) And it's a city of indulgence. It's filled with world-class restaurants that make it hard to eat anywhere else. And so, in that, we need to see that that is a reality here, that, again, it can get into the air we breathe so we don't even see it in ourselves. Fourth, approval. Um, this is huge on a personal level, and, and it is real that we can come to a point where we so desperately long for our identities to be affirmed by others that, that it shapes who we are, and so that need to, for approval drives us more than we want to admit. Marion Barry, the mayor for life in D.C., said, what dragged me down was not being mayor, It was insecurity, the need to be accepted by everyone, the pleasure syndrome. That's what brought me down. This is the reality of the city that we find ourselves in, Redemption Hill. These are how the idols work themselves out in our city. And yes, we just had Martin Luther, Marion Barry, and JFK within five minutes in a sermon. (laughs) So just trying to give you our cultural profits. Now, what do we do? Well, look at what the Apostle Paul did. We're one verse into this thing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Just realizing. Stick with me. Um, There's pizza coming. (laughs) So, in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace... Every day with those who happen to be there. So so what Paul did, rather than building a bunker, rather than leveraging for his own personal advance, rather than, than being starstruck with the city, he instead got into the marketplace. And this is our calling. Recognize the idols of our city and then get into the marketplace. Paul faced idolatry here. And in Athens, what he was facing was first, there were three aspects that he was facing in Athens. Pluralism. Religious pluralism was mandated imperial policy because it's how the Roman government kept control over its territories, was to allow people to worship their own gods. And so you had to accept pluralism, and pagan religions were just a way to believe. He was facing a city that had complete biblical illiteracy. There was no connection between the Jewish synagogue and the culture of Athens here, and competing worldviews, the underlying philosophies of that town. So again, exactly what we face in the district. And this is, this is the context that he stepped into, and he got into the marketplace. And, and as, as he did so—now, what I think is fascinating here is in the previous two cities, Thessalonica and Berea, um, it, Luke highlights that what Paul did in the synagogues, that he was teaching directly from Scripture, saying, listen, all of the prophecies about Messiah— have come to fulfillment in the person Jesus Christ. And so we saw that last week, that it was focused on the synagogue ministry of Paul to the Jews in those cities. Now when we get to Athens, all we get is the ministry in the marketplace and to the Greeks. And so what our author Luke is trying to show us here is the Apostle Paul, when he went into these places, he was doing all of this. But Luke is highlighting this for us to show us this is how you get to Jesus when you're dealing with people who have a background in Scripture. It's saying, look how Scripture unveils itself in the person of Jesus Christ. Now he's showing us this is how we get to the Gospel with people who don't have that background and we have to lay the foundations. And so we get this beautiful application of how Paul would get there among Greek people. And, And so here... And this is important for us, again, because we are in a city that religious pluralism and tolerance is the highest value until you say that you actually believe in something concrete. And we're in a post-Christian culture that is not familiar with the biblical storylines and text. We have a friend that we've been talking to for seven or eight years, um, and just last weekend had, had her over, and we're talking, our boys were playing with, her boys were playing with Simon and my son, and, and as we were talking, she said, all right, so I'm starting to think that you guys are just going to keep coming back to this Jesus thing when we talk about your faith. I was like, yes. <laughs> Seven or eight years of it, and you're catching on. Um, but it, it, to her, she was just in disbelief that we would believe that this actually happened, All of Christianity stands on the historicity of the person and work of Jesus Christ, that he actually lived, actually died, and actually was raised from death to life. All of it. The whole thing falls apart without that. This isn't just a philosophy and a teaching. But in this town, it's virtually universal to recognize the importance of spirituality without tying it to anything concrete. And I've been wrestling with this for years now, but I think... I mean, I don't run into a lot of people that are hostile to the idea of spirituality. Most of the people that I I meet and my neighbors and friends understand that there's something that, that they long for, that there's a spiritual side to life, but I think what they're longing for and what they're trying to piece together is that they want something centering, something that'll bring them peace and give them the energy they need to engage in their career and be able to make it into the friendships and relationships they think are important, the energy to engage in their lives. That's what they want, but they don't want to be told what to do, which makes it impossible to embrace a dead and risen Savior who claims to be king. But what we learn from Paul is how to get into the marketplace. Paul, it says that he went in and reasoned with, or here entered into dialogue with, in the Jew, with Jews and Greeks, and he went into the synagogues with the Jews and into the agora, the marketplace, and this was the cultural means of engagement in the city of Athens. The same language was used of Socrates, um, that he would sit in the marketplace in dialogue and reason with whoever happened to be there. And so Paul followed that model. And went into the marketplace and struck up conversations with whoever whoever happened to be there. The church, we need to hear this and see this because we need to live our lives in the marketplace. We've got to be, live our lives engaging in open conversations with people. If, if you're a Christian and you're unwilling to engage in an open conversation, reasoning with the people around you about real matters of faith and spirituality and life, you will never get to a point where you'll actually be able to speak the gospel to someone in their life. Ever. And so you sit back and wonder, like, why don't I have any opportunities to share my faith? Because you're never involved in conversations that get to faith and spirituality. Get into the marketplace and learn about people. Get past your own bubbles. Like, we, we love to live in bubbles. We love to say that we want diversity in our friend groups and in our lives, and then we surround ourselves with people who think like and vote like and look like and talk like and act like us. Get outside of that. Burst your own bubble. This is one of the things I love about Redemption Hill is is we've got Republicans and Democrats hanging out that are going to have very different reactions to the letter about a report that's been two years in the making that broke this afternoon. If you haven't seen that, please don't go on Twitter right now. It's going to be a mess for the next several weeks, months, year. (laughs) Then... That In our church, we've got folks who are newer to the city that are investing their lives into people who have grown up here and been here their whole life and vice versa. That, and if you're a Christian, you've got to interact with and hang out with people, with people who need Jesus. The church can too easily, again, become a cultural ghetto where nothing comes in and nothing gets out, and, and it's a safe harbor and a stormy place, and we see nothing further from the church of the New Testament than that. And so, let me just pause for a second, which is all I've got here. I understand that some of you are introverts, too, because I can hear you right now just going, you don't know me. I'm going to sit at home with my book, and I'm going to feel good. (laughs) That's fantastic. So read very good books that teach you about the culture of this place, and then find people to talk about the book with. (laughs) Even as an introvert, you need people in your life. And as an extrovert, see, this is another myth, is that I think introverts think that extroverts are just great at getting to hard subjects with people. Opposite. Extroverts are just so happy to be around people that they don't even know what to talk about. They just like to talk. If you're an extrovert, (laughs) get to actual conversation and push it to something real. All right. Nice little excursus, back to the text. (laughs) Paul encounters two different philosophical groups here, Stoics and Epicureans. Stoics were founded by a guy named Zeno of Citium in the 300s to 200s BC. Same time period, Epicurus formed this philosophical school. The Epicureans, they were opposite ends of the spectrum. These guys didn't agree on almost anything. The Stoics were not the life of the party, as you might guess by their name. Nobody says, oh, I'm so glad you're here. You're very stoic. <laughs> um, but they were a group that was, was, had an emphasis on living consistently with nature, individual self-sufficiency. They were essentially pantheistic, that God was a world soul, and they were people that were focused on great civil and moral duty. This is the way it ought to go. This is the way it, we will live our lives, um, and, and we, will, we will follow these rules and morals socially. Epicureans were the opposite end of the spectrum Pleasure was the chief end of life They wanted to escape pain and fear And embrace indulgence And in fact, they were really dualistic Saying it's not a duty to this physical world The greatest thing that they wanted Was to escape from this world Because the spiritual life was more like the gods Who were uninvolved in this world We have both streams running deeply through our city And you can probably think of co-workers That fit each of them (laughs) The one thing they agreed on was that Paul was a fool, so he brought them together in unity. They said that he's a babbler in the ESV. The the literal Greek there is that he's a seed picker. This was a, a code word in Athens among the philosophical community of a market hack, like a bird that was just picking up things from the gutter and trying to spew them out of its mouth. We use this language in our household, in my family, for when somebody, when you're in a deep conversation, like if you think about a conversation that's been going on for 10 or 20 minutes and you're in deep dialogue and somebody else walks in the room and says, did you just say this and picks something totally separate, that they picked out three words of what you said and wants you to catch them up on the whole conversation, we say, nah, you're seed picking. So that's how we've applied scripture (laughs) to our children. But what they're saying here is Paul doesn't have a coherent system. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't get their minds around it. They're saying you're a market hack that's just picking up bits of things. What are you even trying to say? So that's when you get the context here when, he, when they're saying to him, what is this new teaching you're presenting? You're bringing strange things to our ears. We want to know what these things mean. And so they bring him to the Areopagus, which was the philosophical court of Athens and actually had moral jurisdiction in the city. They bring him there because they're just trying to get to the bottom of what are you even, what are you even saying? They also call him a propagandist for foreign gods, which is a big charge because that's actually what Socrates was brought down on. The statement in Plato's Apology was that Socrates is a doer of evil who corrupts the youth and who does not believe in the gods of the city but has other new spirits of his own. And so again, our author Luke is peppering these things in to show us the severity of this circumstance for the Apostle Paul. And so here, but he's, he's out in the marketplace, he's engaging the worldviews of the city, he's getting to know, he even gets to know their poets, and that's why when he stands up he quotes their poets, he quotes Epimenides from Crete, he quotes Erastus as he's proclaiming the gospel. And so you might notice that Paul, it is a robust biblical theology that he ends up preaching, but in the midst of it he's not quoting Bible verses to people that don't have an understanding of the Bible. He's quoting the poets that they know because he's learned the language and the poetry and the culture of that place in very short order. He figured out what was important to people. And I love verse 21 because there may, have never, there may be no description in Scripture that fits our city more than now, now. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time doing is in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That is our town And so Paul serves as a great example to us that we can engage with everyone who's interested and try to win people and not arguments, but posture ourselves with a holy curiosity to learn our city, to learn the people we interact with. And you cannot ever learn this city. Let me just say that. You'll never come to a point where you're like, okay, now we understand the ins and outs of the District of Columbia. Because everybody you meet has a different story. And everybody you meet thinks different things and it has different backgrounds and different experiences that have shaped them and we can learn people and a place over time and not get scared off about interacting with others about the things that we believe and and instead what we see here is not be worried about having all the answers you won't have all the answers but still, there's an opportunity to seize opportunities when they come to you. So Paul gets pulled up to the Areopagus. And, and again, this, it was a court that exercised jurisdiction on religious and moral matters. But Paul was brought before them not to be examined here. He wasn't on trial, but because they couldn't understand him and they wanted to hear it before experts. And so this is the third thing. So first, we've got to learn the idols of our city. Whether you're religious or irreligious, it's good to learn what do people actually, where are our affections drawn and what is this city characterized by? Second, get into the marketplace, invest into people, learn the culture of this place, and now, particularly if you're a Christian, I want to say seize opportunities when they're brought up. Paul's right up there, he was given this opportunity, and he seized it. He didn't, he didn't shrink back, he didn't get scared, he wasn't intimidated by the setting. He, he instead stepped up and said, all right, here's what I've noticed in your city, and he works his way in and does it beautifully. And here, too, we need an encouragement. When opportunities come in front of you, seize them. Grab a hold of them. Don't let them pass you by. And you know when this has happened in your life. I know it's happened in my own. When somebody says something, I'm like, oh, man, I wish I could go there, but I'm scared because I don't want them to reject me because I have an idol of approval. That's not usually what I think. I usually just go, oh. (laughs) But if I was to diagnose my heart later, that's, I think, what I would say. And I think there are times when hear from Christians, just again as a quick aside, what hear from, from Christians, from people who love Jesus and want to be a part of the advance of his gospel because it'll help and bring healing to people in their lives, where I'll hear, oh gosh, I just wish I had faith like that person. I wish I, I, wish I had an evangelistic gift like that person that I know. And I want to tell you today what a pastor has told me. If you bemoan your lack of faith then I encourage you to simply think of what you might do if you did have more faith, and then do it. Because your faith will follow. If you put yourself into a situation where God has to move, then it's going to put you in a situation where you're also dependent on God to move. If you allow yourself to sit back comfortably in control of the circumstances of your life, you're not going to be in a position of dependence to see God move in your life. And so what do we do when we get an opportunity? Well, what we see Paul do, first he finds common ground. He stands up in the midst of the Areopagus and says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along, I observed objects objects of your worship, and I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you therefore worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. Now here, people have taken this different ways. Some have said that Paul was like kind of buttering up the Areopagus, saying, hey, you guys, you are so religious. I don't think so because it was actually illegal in Athens to compliment the Areopagus um, because they just wanted straight arguments. So that probably wasn't the case. Um, Some have taken this to be more sarcastic and deriding. And so, like, if you read the King James, if any of you have that open tonight, the King James says, I perceive that in all ways ye are too superstitious. And I don't think that's what Paul was doing either. I think he was just making observations about what he saw in the city, saying, hey, here's what I've noticed. I've walked around, you guys have altars everywhere. They, I mean, they god, all of the gods, Every gods that you, people had never heard of because, they were, because in, a, in a, a polytheistic system, you had to be worried about what if we missed one? And so they even had an altar to the unknown god saying, well, if we've missed one, maybe that'll be sufficient, so if we offer sacrifices there, then the god we didn't know will go, well, at least they noticed I was unknown. And so Paul he takes that and says, all right, we've got some common ground here. Let me tell you about that one. And what we get is the gospel in all of its beauty and grandeur. But he starts with common ground so he can speak the same language, and we need to learn to do the same thing. If we walk in to a place and just start quoting scripture that people don't know or believe in, it's not going to get anywhere. And he preaches the gospel winsomely and boldly. And look at what we see. If you're, listen, for those of you who are here and are not Christians, whatever you think you know about Christianity whatever you've experienced of Christians or churches that's been negative, whatever you've seen about the politicization of this faith, please understand and allow um, the Bible to speak for itself, because this is the gospel we proclaim. This is the good news. And so here's what Paul has to say. There is a creator. The God who made the world and everything in it. He's saying, look around you, everything that we see. That God doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to mankind life and breath and everything. What a start. He doesn't shrink back. This is directly contrary to the Stoic philosophy saying we live in duty to serve the gods, And Paul says, no, 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 no. The unknown God is the creator of everything, and he cannot be served by us in a way that changes him. And to the Epicureans, every good thing you have, life itself and the breath in your lungs, is a gift from this God. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So then he turns and says, so how do we fit into this? saying, we are all made in the image and likeness of God. And what he was dealing with in Athens was, again, a divide between the Stoics and Epicureans, that that the Stoics did believe that there was a universality of humanity, but the Epicureans and most of the Athenians believed that they were a superior race to the rest of the world. And Paul was undercutting the idols and the presuppositions of that city and saying, there are no superior or inferior races It is from one man that God made every nation, every ethnos. And so everybody bears the image and likeness of God. Every one of us is his offspring. Every one of us has been positioned by God to reach out and feel our way toward him, and he's he's close to every one of us. And he doesn't need to go to the Hebrew Bible there, though he's expounding the Hebrew Bible. He then quotes their own poets to back up this biblical truth. But he doesn't leave it there. He then says, okay, this is who God is. This is who we are. And then he says, but being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. We didn't shape this thing, is what Paul is saying. And now is when things get prickly. The times of ignorance got overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There is not a point in the book of Acts or in the New Testament that the preaching of the apostles did not get to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was everything. It is everything. And so Paul is saying God created this place And we as his offspring, every one of us bears his image and likeness, but every one of us has fallen into rebellion against him or forgotten him or missed the mark of his holiness and righteousness. And he is going to come and stand over this entire world in righteousness and judgment. We will all face him in the end, and he has proven this because there was a man raised from death to life. Now Paul got cut off. It says that he got mocked at this point. The idea of resurrection for the Epicureans would have been I- idiocy. If you finally escaped the trappings of the f- this physical world, why on earth would you ever come back to it? To the Stoics, it didn't make sense. And so they couldn't, they couldn't comprehend the resurrection. This is like my friend that I just told you about last weekend saying, you just keep talking about Jesus and like you actually believe this stuff happened. And it's true, the resurrection is a stumbling block, and it is the thing that's the key to the entire Christian faith. If it happened, then we need to pay attention to everything that Jesus said and his followers taught. If it didn't happen, then we have wasted our time, and we are wasting our lives in devoting ourselves to it. But that's what comes to us. And what we know from the rest of the book of Acts is that what Paul would have continued to say is that this Jesus was killed in our place for our sin, that he was raised from death to life, that he is the one that ascended to the heavens and reigns on the throne, at the throne of the Most High. He is the one returning, and that, because, that it is only through his belief and repentance in him that when he comes and returns in judgment, we would have nothing to fear as we stand before him because instead of standing in our own rebellion and sin, the gift that Christ gives us is that we stand in his righteousness, and so the call to all of us extended from Acts 17 tonight is repent, believe. Everyone, everywhere, all the time, repent and believe because Christ is coming back. And then he trusts that God will change hearts. Some of them mocked him. Some of them said, We want to hear more about this and we're curious about it. So Paul went out from their midst, but look at what happened. There's some people that have tried to say, like, well, what happened in Athens shows that Paul's methodology wasn't right and he shouldn't have gotten into all the philosophical discussions and blah, 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 and and they should write more commentary. (laughs) I think what Luke shows us is an awestruck wonder at what God had done. Some men joined them and believed from the Areopagus. Dionysius, an Areopagite, himself, turned to Christ that day. Damaris, a woman, and others with them, people came to faith even in Athens. Those of you who aren't Christians that are here tonight, you need to hear that this is the gospel. God created us. We stand in rebellion against him In Christ, we have hope for redemption, and he is coming to restore and renew all things to his glory. We can be a part of that story, and you can turn and accept the free gift of his righteousness tonight in faith and repentance. Those of you who are Christians who are here tonight, we need to see the posture of the apostle here. God has placed us in our own Athens. And we can get stuck in the, in the questions of, like, what are we going to do here? Does the gospel even really make an impact here? Are, is it going to be able to bring transformation here? Are we, is, does this message have any relevance in this place to the issues of this place? Are, are, are people even going to be interested to have these kinds of conversations here? Listen, can we at least start by, by recognizing that our city, for all of the good things it has to offer, is a broken place, Idolatry is rampant in this place. And if the Spirit of God resides within you, your heart's going to be troubled as you encounter that idolatry. And then you have a reaction of how you're going to respond to it, or you have a, you have a choice of how you're going to respond to it. But l- let's commit together as a church to get into the marketplace. To, to try to burst our own bubbles and cross lines and get into, into, into real life and relationship with people around us that God has placed in your workplaces, in your neighborhood, in, in, you know, when you, wherever you are, whenever you're there, and to seize opportunities when they come. Listen, whoever you are tonight, whatever, you, whatever you're coming into this place with and the, the burdens you carry and the brokenness you carry and the shame and the guilt and the uncertainty and insecurities that you've carried in here tonight, I really believe what it says when it says that, that God has determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of our dwelling place. That it's not an accident that you're in this room tonight. That it's not an accident that you're in this city right now. That it's not an accident that you're in this place in the midst of the chaos that's swirling through our culture and that as a church, God has entrusted this time in this place to us. And he's put us where he has, when he has, so that we would seek him and that we would perhaps even feel our way toward him because he's not far from any one of us. And so we are placed where God wants us when he has put us here and it's for our good so that we will find him and for his glory. And so tonight, my prayer is that you would understand God's sovereignty in placing you where he has, when he has, and reach out and that you would find him because he's not far from you. And let's pray. Father, we believe that you're present with us. You, Jesus, Lord Jesus, you promise us that whenever there's two or three of us gathered, you would be present there in our midst. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill this place and fill our hearts, transform our lives and transform our city. Father, we, we long to see you work And would you forgive us for the times when we drink so deeply of this place that we fail to be able to see its brokenness? And would you forgive us for for times when we're so overwhelmed by this city's brokenness that we fail to see and seize the opportunities you put in front of us? Father, I pray that tonight you by your spirit would draw hearts to repentance and belief out of your goodness and grace and kindness and love that we have nothing to fear in righteous judgment if we stand in the righteousness of the judge, Jesus Christ. Would you use Redemption Hill and other churches that faithfully proclaim your word as your instruments to change this place. Give us the vision to be a part of that work. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.